Our scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Good morning. It's good to be with you and to turn our attention again to this book of Proverbs. And we're looking at Proverbs chapter 21. There are movies or books, stories, novels, which seem absolutely confusing and baffling until you get to the end. I'm sure you've seen something like that. Uh, you know, there's movies that run backwards in time. You have no idea what's happening. There's movies about lives that seem completely independent. Four or five stories told about uh, people who seem to have nothing to do with each other. But then, at the end, everything comes together. There's a kind of a crystal clarity because the author has a point to make and he makes it very clearly. And he draws all those strings together at the end. That's Christmas. As you stand back and look at it, there's all kinds of strands that make no sense in and of themselves. There's this young woman from Nazareth, a, a tiny, forgettable little hamlet. And this young woman is pregnant. At the same time, as her relative who lives further south is also pregnant, but this relative is a few months further along. Does that matter? Is that significant? We see that at the same time this couple has to travel south to Bethlehem, and they have to do that because this monarch, this Caesar who rules all the known world, has decreed that it be so. So they go south and they go to a city called Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Could it have been something else? Could it have been a different place? While they're there, this paranoid regional king is upset because he's heard rumors that there's a baby boy born who's going to usurp his throne, so he decides to kill all the baby boys in this particular locality. But this couple and their baby boy have already escaped, and they've gone to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why not Syria or why not Persia or Turkey or somewhere else? Why? Why all these details? Were they just happenstance? Is this just random events that took place? Yet when you read the Gospels, you'll see something interesting. You see that all these small details were orchestrated by the finger of God because they fulfilled ancient prophecies made hundreds of years earlier, beginning really in Genesis chapter 3 and then Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's Prophecies that I've mentioned here in, from Hosea and Micah and Malachi. And all of these prophecies had to be fulfilled because they identified that this baby would be the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. So could it have happened anywhere? Could Jesus have been born in Japan or in Sweden? You know, that would make sense of all those portraits of Jesus that we see, don't we? You know, blue-eyed with blonde highlights in his hair. We'd say, oh, I, now I understand. But no, he had to be born in this particular way, in this particular place. In fact, as you go back through history, you see that God directed kings and kingdoms the way maybe you might take your finger and put a furrow in the soil and make water flow through it. Because he wanted all of history to flow towards Christmas. And that's what our text says. Proverbs chapter 21, 
Verse 1, God is in charge. How Christmas happened? Well, it says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the king. We think that people of influence and power, kings and queens, determine history, but this text says they may think so, but God governs the heart of the king, and therefore he really is in charge of history. So we should take comfort. I think that's what it's saying to us, by the way, that you know, when you get all upset because your favorite political policy has not been implemented or because your favorite politician was not elected, don't worry, God is still in charge of history. In fact, those who are elected should not get too full of themselves because God is in charge even of what the outcome of their laws and their behavior is. He can change their edicts as easily as uh, redirecting the flow of water in a channel. That's what our text says. So take comfort. God directs history as he wills, and he's good, and he's righteous, and he has an end, he has a purpose in mind towards which everything is marching. And so, in particular, as we look at Christmas, we see that God had a purpose for the history of his people Israel. Really, we could say two purposes. They were to preserve and pass on the oracles of God, the word of God, and secondly, from them would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They were the cradle in which he would be born. God appointed them through this task, and all of their history was directed towards them accomplishing this task. You know, they weren't a great people, and yet all their victories came through them, uh, through, through God, rather, not through them. When you look at it, it's kind of interesting that they were in some ways a backward people compared to their uh, enemies. Uh, there, some of their enemies lived in great fortified cities when the Israelites were just a nomadic people wandering around. We read later on that some of their enemies, like the Philistines, had perfected the art of, of using iron and making weapons out of iron, which the Israelites had not mastered. Technologically, militarily, the enemies were advanced, and yet, and yet God gave them the victory. That's how our chapter ends, by the way. Chapter 21, verse 31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. That's what God was saying. I'm the one who directs the course of history, not your wonderful armies and technology, all of the events that transpire in the hands of God. In fact, Not just the victories, but even, you might call it, the defeats of Israel were in the hands of God. God twisted kings and kingdoms in just the shape he wanted, made events transpire at just the time he wanted in order to accomplish his purposes. So he used not just what we might call good kings like David, but he used kings that were absolutely opposed to God. Wicked kings and pagan kings and godly kings, and he used them for his own purposes. So, for example, when his people required discipline, judgment, the prophets explain exactly what was happening. In First Chronicles and in Isaiah, it mentions that God raised up pagan kings. Various kings from Assyria came and were used as servants of God. They're even called that to exercise the discipline of God on his people. He was in charge. And then later on, when that period of judgment was over, the prophet Isaiah and then the writer of Second Chronicles point out, he influenced the 
heart of this great king, Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, to return the people from exile. He was in charge. He ruled the hearts of kings. And then if we move forward four or five or more centuries, we come to Christmas. And there we have this great king of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus. And we have this paranoid king, Herod, who ruled over the region uh, that Jesus was born in. And it says in Luke chapter 2 that they were used to fulfill the prophecies pointing to Jesus. This Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7 is interesting. He mentions all these kings. They're doing what they think is best for them. They're exercising their power and their authority. And yet, whether they know it or not, whether they mean to or not, God is using all of that to accomplish the fulfillment of all of his prophecies. They're pawns, you see. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So this verse, 21.1 in Proverbs, shows how God directed history towards Christmas. But chapter 21, verse 2, maybe, we could say, tells us why he had to do it. Look at what verse 2 says. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. It's an interesting question. Why did God use evil kings to accomplish his purposes? Kings who opposed him. Kings who worshipped all kinds of idols. You know why? It's a very simple reason. Because that's the only kind of kings and queens there are. That's what the Bible says from beginning to end. That's the only kind of people there are. We're all in need of a Savior. That's why the angelic message to the shepherds was, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We all need a Savior. And so chapter 21 verse 2 has this very simple yet very scary truth about ourselves. We think we're right. You think you're right. You think you're right all the time. We think we're right even when we're dead wrong. A man's way is right in his own eyes. Unless you women think you're excluded, let me just say it. A woman's way is right in her own eyes. It's talking about people. It's talking about human nature. So the best kings and the best people still don't know how dead wrong they are. So it's not just kings, but all of us are convinced that we're right and that we're right all the time, even when we're dead wrong. It's a human condition. Undoubtedly, you experienced it very recently, maybe even this morning. Who used the car last? How come the keys aren't where they're supposed to be? Coffee is overdone. Who forgot to turn it on? You're driving too fast. You're driving too slow. You woke me up too early. I don't need this much time. Somehow, what you did was judged by someone else to be wrong. And what happened? Well, you got a little hot under the collar. How dare you question me? Who do you think you are? Don't you know that I'm right and you're wrong? It happens all the time. And yet, this text tells us that we need to be corrected. We need to be, we need to be overruled constantly. The blessing of this verse is that there is a good God. There's a gracious God who's willing to do that. Examine our hearts. To weigh our hearts. To tell us where we're wrong. To tell us where we're right. So, History is marching on and our smaller histories, you know, your life, my life is marching on and we have a part to play. We are to follow his word. We are to do what God wants us to do. But 
you know how it is. We do it in our own stumbling way. We're not quite as good as we think we are. But his plan is accomplished. His glory is magnified in any case because he has the power to correct us. He has the power to tell us which way we should go. If you want to think of it this way, God's plan is this great big painting. And our part is to do a small piece of that painting. Maybe to, you know, if, if the painting is this whole sanctuary, we're painting one twig on one little tree. And all of our life is involved with painting that little twig. And we may not be clear how it exactly fits into the whole painting, to the whole conception that God has, but that's the part he's assigned to us. And we give ourselves to that. You know, the great masters who painted these beautiful paintings, sometimes huge works, didn't really paint the whole painting. They, they would have apprentices, students, to whom they would assign small portions of the painting. So, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, who would eventually become a great master painter, of course, at 15 was a, a, apprenticed to Verrocchio, this Italian painter who was his master, and apparently, Leonardo's first contribution was to paint an angel in one of his master's paintings. That's it. Just one angel in this huge painting that the master had done. That was his job. But the conception of the painting, the big picture, how the whole thing was to be conceived was in the hands of the master. And here's the thing, the master could overrule what the apprentices had done. In fact, he could go back and paint over what the apprentice had done, if it wasn't to his liking, he could redo everything so that the painting as a whole ended up being the master's work. That's how God works in our lives also. He overrules, he weighs what we're doing, but he also has the power to overrule what we're doing. And that's a blessing. God overrules and corrects us to make our lives and our work, the outcome of our lives, beautiful and graceful and glorious to him. So he weighs the heart, our text says. He overrules our judgments about our own selves in order to make our lives beautiful for his glory and for our joy. So Proverbs 16, verse 9. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You see, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that an encouraging piece of news? God can correct us. You know how... We get overwrought. I don't know what to do, whether I should do this or whether I should do this. It's all right. God's in charge. God can correct our steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. How wonderful that is. My plans may be wrong, but the purposes of God will stand. And I much prefer for his purposes to stand than for my plans to be accomplished. Don't you feel the same way? God is in charge. God is in charge of our lives. So why Christmas? Because we don't see ourselves as we should. We don't see our frailties, our weaknesses, and we need a Savior who can save us from our own foolishness, from our own stumbling, and make our lives beautiful and fruitful for Him. God weighs our hearts so that He can make our lives fruitful. That's Christmas. That's why there was Christmas. Remember what Jesus said? He said, that he didn't come for those who were well, who were healthy and strong. He said he was a physician who came for the sick. And, and what our text is saying is that some of us don't realize that we're sick. 
The ways of a man are right in his own eyes. We're sure we're healthy. We're sure we're seeing things right, that our sense of judgment about life, about right and wrong is correct. But it's not. So 21, verse 2, God weighs the heart, just as the master hired apprentices, those who he trusted, yet those to whom he had entrusted the task of painting little parts of his masterwork. He had assigned them what to do, but he had the right to erase and paint over what he considered mistake. So the Lord examines our hearts. He doesn't mean to crush us, but sometimes he paints over what we've done. He has to redo what we have done because he wants to make the whole beautiful. And so notice this verse or this one word in 21 verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes and then but the Lord, but the Lord. There's a conflict here, isn't there? The way we see ourselves and the way God sees us is not the same. The God who rules over us, looks deeply. So 17, verse 3, I don't have it here, but chapter 17, verse 3 of Proverbs says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. He goes much deeper than our justifications, our excuses, and even our delusions. He weighs the heart. Why are you doing what you're doing? Let me look deeply at what's happening in your life. So, What do we teach our children? What do the children of God do? One of the things this means is that the children of God learn to, as a habit, allow the Lord to weigh their hearts. We have to have that as a habit. It has to be a pattern for God's children. Think about this. Around us, there is a constant demand for apologies. I mean, if you read the news, there's always somebody demanding an apology from someone else. I wonder, do you think Scripture commands us to demand apologies from other people? My inclination is to say, I don't think anywhere it does that. If there's any exception, it might be some places where we're told to seek reconciliation. And if there's a, someone who has heard us, to go and talk to that person about it. But this whole modern cultural practice of demanding apologies, I'm not sure that there's any scriptural warrant for it anywhere. And yet, here's the interesting thing. Scripture is full of commands to seek forgiveness. Why is that? How does that relate to chapter 21, verse 2 of Proverbs? Well, the first, demanding an apology, really comes from someone who is right in his or her own eyes. I'm right. You're wrong. When are you going to apologize to me? I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to acknowledge what you've done wrong. It's someone who's convinced of their innocence. It's those who are sure that 100% of the wrong is on the part of the other person. I'm waiting. So they stand there tapping their toe, you know. I don't need to do anything. I demand an apology. On the other hand, the second, those who seek forgiveness is someone whose heart has been weighed by the Lord. It's those who know their fault. They're not arguing anymore about percentages of wrong and percentages of right. They just seek forgiveness for what God, God's own Spirit has shown them that they have done. God weighs the heart. And so scriptural emphasis is always on seeking forgiveness because that requires us to go into the presence of God and say, weigh my heart, Lord, what have I done? Whereas demanding apologies is always trying to take the log out of someone else's eye. It's focusing elsewhere. 
So God's children are commanded to seek this. Weigh my heart. As you look at the book of Galatians in the New Testament, interestingly, it talks about how Christ came when the time was fulfilled. He was born of a woman. You know, God orchestrated history. But then it goes on to talk about what our text is talking about in chapter 5. Chapter 21, verse 2 is really echoed in Galatians chapter 5. Here we were, blind, stumbling along. We were headed for a cliff, about to go to our death, and we didn't know it. We thought that we were on exactly the right path. We knew proudly what we were doing, we said. But our hearts were full of, what does Galatians 5 say? Impurity, jealousy, anger, disputes, and on and on and on. That's what was in our hearts, but we were blind to it. But then Galatians 5, verse 16, has this echo of Proverbs 21, verse 2. It says, listen to the Holy Spirit, and you will not walk in that way. The Holy Spirit will weigh your heart. It says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. The Spirit of God is in us, weighing our hearts giving us his judgment about our actions so that we don't have to go on our stumbling, dangerous path. And so what happens is that we're left as the children of God, and really as parents who are training our children to do this, we're left in an intimate conversation with the Holy Spirit. When there's disputes, when there's tension in marriages and in families or in churches, we're left not looking at other people's faults, but we're left in an intimate conversation with the Holy Spirit. Weigh my heart, O Lord. No confusing static about, yeah, 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 I know I did some wrong, but what about her? I know I have faults, but so does he. I have rights, you know. Or, of course, all those things about how there was circumstance. Yes, I exploded, but it's only because I've held it in for so long. But now the Holy Spirit just says, Hush, just be quiet. I just want to talk to you about you. I want to weigh your heart and bring it into the presence of the Holy God. And I want to deal with you because that's what matters to me. And so the Holy Spirit weighs our heart. He corrects us about the things that seem so right to us. And he shows us God's judgment about all those things. Friends, that's the joy and that's the comfort of Christmas. History is in the hands of God, but our lives are also in the hands of God. The God who rules history, the God who orchestrated all events to make sure that Christmas happened, the Savior was born, is the same God who rules our hearts today. If you could use the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire, the Assyrian Empire, you know what? He can use you and me. He can correct us and unbend us and untwist us so that we end up serving His purposes. I was thinking about A friend who actually attended church here many, many years ago, let me call him Peter, who was a young art student, very talented, very skilled student. And at the same time, in our town, not far away from him, was a great artist. He was really a master artist. Anything he did sold for literally tens of thousands of dollars. And this young artist, Peter, just was dying to meet the master artist, get get some training, get some advice from him. And he waited and he waited. Finally, he couldn't, so he grabbed a few of his best paintings and he walked over to the studio of this master artist, knocked on the door and said, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I just have something to show you, a few of the paintings I've done. Could you critique them? 
Could you tell me what I could do better? And this great artist was very kind, and he invited him into his studio. And at the time, this artist was working on this huge uh, painting, this big painting, and you could tell he was still covered with paint. He had a brush in his hands, and he invited Peter in. And he said, uh, he looked at his painting, and he started to give them an instruction on, and this is what Peter told me, on how to paint an egg, how to make the shape right, the perspective right, the shading right. And he took a brush, and he started to paint on this great painting that he was working on. And he just took a brush, and he painted an egg, and he explained to him how you should hold the brush, how you should paint, how you should have it fit into the whole painting. And, And Peter says, it was just wonderful. Except, what about this great painting? Did you ruin it? And Peter, as years went by, became a curator in a museum. And he told me, you know, there's something amazing. That painting is hanging in a museum. In the whole world, in the whole world, I'm the only one that knows that underneath that painting is the picture of an egg. Because it was painted over. It was gone. And the artist knew that he could do that. Take courage. That's what I'm saying. I think for Peter to take his favorite paintings, the things he had poured his heart into the the things that were emblematic, he thought of all his talent and skill, and give them to someone else and say, here, critique them. Tell me what I could do better. Tell me what's wrong with what I've done. Boy, that takes courage, doesn't it? It's an act of trust, of faith. But he wanted to get better. And friends, that's what God is asking us to do. That's what our text is saying. It's opening our hearts to the Holy Spirit, especially when there's some conflict, some dispute in which you're involved especially when there's some stumble that you've been made aware of. It's taking everything that we think we know about ourselves and laying it before the Holy Spirit of God and saying, you know, I trust you, Holy Spirit, more than I trust myself. Show me what's wrong with my life. Correct my thinking, correct my words, correct my heart so that I can honor you. Wow, it takes courage. It's an act of faith, but it's the faith of all of God's people, isn't it? It's what the song says, isn't it? That's 21, verse 2 in Proverbs. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Not my thoughts, not what I can defend, not all the reasons I have for doing what I do, but Lord, weigh my heart and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Amen. Lord our God, we are your people. We're your children your children, thank you for being a father to us. Thank you for correcting us in your wise, gentle way. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to always seek, always seek this gift that you give us of having our hearts weighed by your Holy Spirit. As parents, Lord, teach us to convey that to our children, to doubt their own view of themselves and seek your view of themselves, to trust only what you tell them. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace and to experience your sanctification in our hearts, to grow more and more to be like Christ in the way we love others and the way we love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.